This morning we're going to talk about generosity. You know, generosity is a, it's an odd thing. You know, we tend to evaluate generosity on the basis of what we see. And so the more someone gives to something, the more generous we think they are, right? Somebody gives a million dollars, we say, wow, they're so generous. Somebody gives two dollars and we say, what's that all about? Somebody writes a big check, they give it to you. Our thought is how incredibly generous they are, how incredibly wonderful they are. But when we see people give small amounts, our thought and our tendency is to think, I wonder what's holding on to their heart. What is not allowing them to give generously? Now, I'm not trying to cast blame on us and our perception, but this is kind of what we're trained to do, right? And so you're you're listening to a Christian radio station that's listener-supported, what do they do? They tend to talk up big gifts. You are watching PBS, you're listening to NPR, a couple of times a year, it's pledge drive. What does that mean? You switch the channel. (laughs) We just had a donor come in, and they gave us a sandwich. We're not hungry anymore, but we also can't show you any more television. Right, And so they, they applaud big gifts. They want people giving lots of money. And, and we tend to, to assign these people the category of, of generous. We think that they're generous. Let me show you what generosity, and this is a big number, but this big number is comprised of, of many smaller numbers, many families struggling and looking at it. I want to show you what generosity looks like from our perspective from this church, okay? We're in the midst of this capital campaign. Last week, we held a couple of different meetings. Uh, we ran in the bulletin. We had some folks show up to it. We had 30 families turning commitment cards. 30 families that say, over the next three years, this is what our generosity before God is going to look like. We have 262 giving units in this church. Okay? 30 families turning commitment cards. And this is what that number looks like. One million nine hundred sixty seven thousand seven hundred and fifty two dollars amen that's what it looks like for the leaders of the church those leading in passion those leading in service to be generous before god so the question becomes what does it look like for me What does it look like for my family to be generous before God? And what we're going to see is this passage here in 2 Corinthians 8 gives us the most remarkable yet shocking picture of generosity because it's not from somebody who has lots of money, but it's from someone who has given every bit of their heart to God. Read with me, 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 5. Paul writes, and he says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy, their extreme poverty, have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and be on their means, of their own accord. Look at this, look at this heart disposition. 
He says, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but as they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. And what a wonderful picture of generosity. Let's journey through this together this morning. So Paul writes this church in Corinth, and effectively what he gives them is is what we take away this morning. He gives them an example of generosity. He gives to them an example of generosity. And just as I said a few moments ago, when you're to think of generosity, you tend to think of people with a lot of money, people with a lot of wherewithal. But Paul writes and describes a group of people who have nothing. And so we have to understand that about them, this group of Macedonian churches. And so you're thinking uh, the Philippian believers, the Thessalonian believers, the noble Bereans that are described in Acts. These group of folks, they have nothing. They don't have anything. But he writes to this group of of Corinthians who, who some of them have money, but all of them need a change of heart directed towards their finances, outwardly directed towards God, inwardly inwardly, uh, kind of moving in submission to God. So he says, we want you to know something. We have to know. We have to be convinced. We have to submit ourselves to the word of God. If we don't do this and we assign a number based upon what alleviates guilt in us or or what we think we can or what we think we should, then we have not approached generosity the right way. We've not approached it the right way. Because what we're doing in that regard is assigning something that does what? It makes us feel good about what we've given. It makes us feel good about what we've given. But in his description of generosity, it it moves from us on the basis of what God has already done in us. We want you to know, brothers, about, look what he says, is the grace of God that has been given. If you're struggling with generosity... If you're struggling with your finances and and are holding on to them, recognize that this is not overcome by writing bigger numbers that your banker calls you and says, I'm sorry, you overdrew it again. What he's talking about in this is our response to an inward deposit of grace that God has given. What has God given this church? What has he given the churches of Macedonia? Is it a windfall? Does he write and say, hey, look, you guys have won the Roman lottery, and this is good. No, he doesn't say this. There is this mistaken assumption among many of us that uh, when I hit retirement, like I won't have all these things and I'll be able to give more of my time. When I hit this next level, I'll be able to give more of myself When I finally pay this off, I'll be able to do more. If I finally hit that scratch off just right, like if I hold my mouth just so, if I hit the numbers big, then I'll finally be able to be generous. My brother calls me every time the lottery goes over 100 million. He says, I'm going to buy you a ticket. I got to be honest, if he would just send me the the dollar, the $5 or whatever it is, every time it came up, I could have taken Valerie to a really nice meal by now because he's never going to hit it. But there's this understanding in him, and, and the conversation always goes, and I kind of, every, every other time we have a longer conversation of, you know, I thought I'd pay off mom and dad's house, I thought I'd buy dad a nice truck, I thought I'd do this. And I'm thinking, brother, like, after taxes, like, and, and then all these people you're suddenly related to, you're not going to have anything left. <laughs> like, and I know you, you're changing your name, moving to an island, I will never see you again. I'll get a honey-baked ham for Thanksgiving and Christmas. In a Facebook happy birthday, period. 
when that rolls around. But I'm never going to see you again. But, but many of us have this same idea of what generosity looks like. Once I get that raise, once I get that bonus, once I get this, once I get that, then I will begin to be generous. If you can't be generous where you're at, getting more is not going to suddenly help you grow into generosity. If you make four twenty-five, seven twenty-five, if you make ten thousand, twenty thousand, thirty thousand dollars a year, and think that if I only made a hundred, two hundred, three hundred, then I would begin to be generous, you're fooling yourselves. Generosity doesn't begin when you have a lot. It begins when you submit yourself to the movement of God in your heart. You have received the most incredible gift of grace from God. You've been forgiven your sins. God has moved to forgive you your sins. His lavish kindness has been poured out to you. And what Paul writes in verse 1, he says, it is the grace of God that has been given. It's the grace of God that has motivated generosity on the part of the Macedonian Christians. It's this operative grace that is mobilizing generosity in their part. Many of us, many of us, our prayer needs to be, God, would you expand the grace in your life and would you allow this grace to take hold and permeate all the way down to my wallet, my bank accounts, and all of my stuff. That's what it is. What we see in the picture of the Macedonian Christians isn't a people who are particularly in, you know, ingenious at coming up with ways to turn assets into revenue, revenue streams. It's not like they were liquidating assets and they said, oh, this is grandma's uh, sewing deal and, and nobody uses that anymore, so I'm going to sell that. And, and over here is this antique car, I'm going to sell that. And over here is this child, I never really liked them anyway, so I'm going to sell them. And, and, and just kind of moving down this list of assets and all these things and giving these things away. And all of a sudden they come to Paul and be like, look, we liquidated all this stuff and so we want to give you money. Paul doesn't address any of that. Doesn't address any of that. Comes into it. He says the most prominent characteristic among this group is the grace of God at work in their lives. Among these churches of Macedonia. What we need is the grace of God to well up in our lives, to pray that his grace would transform our perspective on giving, and he would transform us from being miserly, being small-minded, to being generous. Look how he describes them. This is why this is such an amazing group. Because we find that this isn't a people living in the lap of luxury, experiencing the goodness of God, and just saying, God is so good, I just got to give something back to him. God is so amazing, I got a smoking hot wife, I got a huge house and a fast car, I got to give something back to him. Look at the setting he describes in the first part of of chapter 8 and verse 2. He says, this group, the grace of God is, is running crazy in their lives. They are in a severe test of affliction. Does that sound like anything anybody wants? Man, God, I'd love to be generous. Would you bring me some severe test of affliction my way? That sounds great. I got nothing going on Sunday afternoon. Severe test of affliction, sign me up. Anybody? No. But this is what he describes about this group. He says they have a severe test of affliction. We know historically, looking at these churches in Macedonia, that they didn't have very much. And we know, looking at them historically, that they're also facing pressure from the Roman Empire. And so they're already not wealthy. They're already not doing well. But now all of a sudden you add in governmental authorities that have come in and put pressure on them. They feel themselves being ostracized. They feel themselves in some sense being cast off. They're losing jobs. They're losing money. They're losing prestige. They're losing family members. Nobody wants anything to do with these folks. 
Anytime something goes wrong in their community, they look at them and they say, oh, you know, it's, 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 it's Brian's fault. You know, it's Melissa's fault. You know, it's James's fault. You know, it's Larry's fault. You know, it's Steve's fault. Somebody says, why? He said, because they're a Christian. They have different beliefs than we do. They have different understanding than we do. And so people begin to assign blame to them. And so they're, they're ostracized. They're in this incredibly difficult test. They're at the point of breaking they're frankly in situations that if any of us were, were submitted to, any of us had to go through, we would just throw our hands up in the air and say, I'm done. I just want to be out of this. I don't want to endure this anymore. Paul describes them as those who, having received the grace of God, they're in the middle of this situation, and the grace of God's not transforming their surroundings. But what the grace of God is doing is upholding them in the midst of this severe test of affliction. Now what he goes on to say next is this completely uh, contradictory idea. What we see is he describes them in terms, in some sense, of opposites. Where are they? Severe test of affliction. But look what he describes next. He says their abundance of joy, what does it meet with? Their extreme poverty. Extreme test of affliction. Imagine how bad your life has been. Multiply it by a factor of five. Multiply it by a factor of ten. Now you're beginning to get the picture of what their lives are like. Every day is a struggle. Every day is overwhelming. Anytime something goes wrong, people turn and they blame you. This is every day. They're not just having a case of the Mondays. This is every day for this group. The next thing Paul writes about them, he says, their abundance of joy. I mean, they're not just choosing to look at their situation and say, man, the glass is half full. I'm tired of these people running around saying the glass is half empty. I'm just going to choose to put on my rose-colored glasses and just see the world through renewed vision. That's not what he's describing. What he's describing is they are able to have this unassailable joy, this unchangeable joy, this joy which is found in Jesus. It's found in the grace they have received. And on the basis from whence this joy, which this grace comes from, their joy is able to be described as overabundant. And the amazing thing is that you and I can have the same joy. You and I can have the same joy. Man, I saw people on, on Monday that were sackcloth and ashes, and then on Wednesday morning, they were running around with the oil of gladness pouring down them. You read the Bible too literally. Don't do that. I saw people on the other side who had the oil of gladness uh, Monday, and then Tuesday night, they began to wipe that oil away and throw on some ashes and be like, anybody got sackcloth? Half off. I need some sackcloth. Don't do that. Our hope has to be found in him, not in rulers or authorities. They had no rulers or authorities looking at them, looking after them, the severe test of affliction. And then he describes when he says, there is an abundance of joy among these Christians. And that's transformative. When we allow the grace of God at work in our lives, the grace that saved us, the grace that's transforming our hearts to do its full work, it can produce in us an unassailable joy. Look what it meets with. They have this abundance of joy, and it's matched with extreme poverty. 
extreme poverty. Man, I got two pennies in my pocket. You hear that? That's the sound of two pennies rubbing together. Can you hear that? Oh, there we go. They would have killed for two pennies to rub together. He describes these folks, and, and the ESV renders it extreme poverty. When you really begin to break it down and look at it, they are at the bottom. They are at the depths. There is nowhere for them to go. They are dirt poor. They've got nothing. There are people with little that look at them and say they have nothing. They look at people with little and say they have a lot. They have nothing. There is nothing to their name. There is nothing in them. Everyone in in the community looks at them and says they have nothing to offer. Why? Because they have nothing. Their abundance of joy runs into their extreme poverty. And look what what it runs into. This is like any number times zero is what? Zero. Man. Any number times zero is what? When you take extreme joy and you add it to extreme poverty, we expect expect it to result in zero. Everybody say zero. zero. But what seems to happen here in terms of cosmic divine math, when we have joy and it encounters our poverty, it can still overflow in abundant generosity. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. When Valerie and I lived in Prague, we'd invite somebody over to the house. Our Czech friends would always say yes. Always say yes. You want to come over to our apartment? Absolutely. You want to come over for dinner? I'll be there. I mean, just always affirmative. They're supposed to be there at 8. We get an SMS. It's 7.59. Not going to make it. Real sorry. Always say yes. Frequently back out. That's just the way their culture ran. But what we see in this isn't this anticipation of things getting better and it changing their giving. What we see in this is this transformative work of grace in their heart has changed their ability. Extreme joy or abundant joy, extreme poverty. These things come together and we would think that they would result in platitudes we think that what paul would write is and they sent us the most wonderfully written note saying that if our situation changes we will be generous if our situation changes things things change for us we will be so generous we will floor you and so that's what we've been praying for paul we've been praying god would come in and would change our situation so we can be generous but doesn't say that It doesn't even say that in the New Living Translation. Look at this. He says, their extreme poverty meets with their abundance of joy and it overflows in a wealth of generosity on their part. Now, the amazing thing we see in this, and you're going to see rolling through this, is that Paul doesn't look like that and say, I knew you could do it. I knew you could do it. In fact, as we read this, Paul gets down in there and says, effectively, I had no idea they could do this. I am floored at what the grace of God has produced in their lives. Look what he says. He says in verse 3, For they gave according to their means. In some sense, Paul looks at it and says, In in the main, they gave according to their means. Everybody's saying, Okay, okay, okay. And Paul says, As I can testify and beyond their means. So you say, If anyone was to look at them and say, What can these dirt poor people give? You'd say, Not much. And Paul would say, That's what I thought. 
And looking at their means, they gave according to that. And then Paul says, now hold on a second. Now as I can testify, and beyond their means. One commentator looked at it and he said, he gave, they gave above what anyone looking at their situation would say is wise. They gave above what anyone looking at their situation would say is wise. And what does he say here? This is so important. Of their own accord. Of their own accord. Paul was writing fundraising letters to churches. And churches would send to Paul, they'd send to others money. And there was some pressure, and you can see that especially in, in, in the first letter to the Corinthians. We're coming through, you need to have some money ready. And some of these other letters, we're coming through, you need to have some money ready. But what does Paul say in here? These guys set their mind on the amount that they were going to give. They did it of their own accord. It's not because Paul or some other were moving and guilting and pressuring them. They did it of their own accord. Now look at their heart in the midst of this, verse 4. They did it of their own accord, verse 3, verse 4. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. You got dirt poor people. Life's terrible. Everything's bad all around them. But what their heart looks like before God is begging Paul to be able to join him. Now you look over the course of Scripture, what we find is there are nine references to this, this group of churches in Macedonia where they're either sending support to Paul or, or requesting to send, send support to Paul. Now certainly there are more than that in real life. But of recorded examples, we see nine indications of their request. They are begging him earnestly to give. A people with nothing. A people with less than nothing. A people who, if you and I were to look at, we'd say they have no valuable assets. They can make no valuable contribution to this endeavor. And what does Paul say? They begged us to be able to give. They counted it a joy to be able to give. Now, why were they giving? Were they giving so that God would give back to them? We don't see that anywhere in here. We don't see this kind of pay-to-play mentality. We don't see the idea that if you give more, God will bless you more. What we see in this is they, because of the grace of God already at work in their lives, their desire is to give more. Of their own accord, they're making their minds up before God, and they're begging Paul earnestly over and again. Every time he comes through, every time he sends somebody through, they're saying, what does Paul need? What can we give him? They're like their grandmother that's just trying to fatten you up, right? Want another piece of pie, darling? Want another piece of pie, darling? They want to contribute. They want to be a part. They want to help out. Look what Paul says here in verse 5. Verse 4 is a parenthetical, so it's really his connection back to verse 3. He says it's of their own accord. And look what he goes on to say. And this, not as we expected. Paul receives this gift from the Macedonian Christians, and he's floored. You can imagine Titus or someone else is bringing this through, and Paul's opening it up, and he says, now who was this that gave the money? And they're like, oh man, it's the Macedonian churches. And Paul says, no, 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 you must have put it in the wrong envelope. Who was this that gave the money? And they say, it's the Macedonian churches. And he goes, I said, who gave the money? And they say, it's the Macedonian churches. He said, okay, I just wanted to be clear. <laughs> He's floored. First, he thought it was according to their means. He said, no, this certainly has to be more than beyond. And he says, none of us saw this coming. It's not as we expected. 
We expected they would take part. We expected to be a part of the program, but none of us had any idea that this is what it would look like, and this is how it was accomplished. He says they gave themselves first to God and then by God's will to us. They gave themselves first to God and then by God's will to us. One of the things I've been worried about throughout this deal is that we would march people up, we'd have some of our folks would give up and come up and give testimonies, we'd give out numbers, we'd have the campaign guy come out and talk to you, and this is what would happen, that some of you would hear their words, you'd hear his words, you'd see numbers on a page, and you'd give. Wouldn't really pray about it outside of saying, God, what would you have me give? And then you write a number that fits in your budget. Or you write a number that doesn't really fit in your budget. You just write a, a huge, crazy nonsense. I want to slap you at so big number. Because it feels so good, not because I want to hurt you. What we see in this, Paul writes, and he says, your giving needs to first go to God. You pray. God, what would you have me give? God, your grace is at work in my heart. I know you want to make me generous with so much more than my finances. You want to help me be, to be generous to those I disagree with. You want to help me be generous to those who are evil to me, who have wronged me. You want to help me be generous with my time. You want to help me be generous with my love. You want to help me be generous with my possessions. So much more than money. So you go to God and you pray these things. God, would you affect a change in my heart to make me generous? And then you go in, and, and then having first given yourselves to God, then you submit before the church. This is how generosity works. Your generosity is not ultimately determined by the number you write on a commitment card or an offering envelope. Do you understand that? Your generosity is not ultimately determined by any of these things. Your generosity is determined by your faithful response to God. And that's the only way that any of us, myself included, our generosity is determined. One of the things we see in the Gospel of Mark is this wonderful picture of generosity. Mark chapter 12 Verses 41 through 44, Jesus is sitting in, in the court of women. And so this is where the treasury boxes were. And, and what we read is he sat down opposite the treasury and watched people putting money into the offering box. And really there would be multiple boxes across this. And, and somebody would walk up and they'd say, I give, I'm just going to use American money, I give $10,000. And they'd say, $10,000. And they'd begin to look and inspect and make sure it was right. Make sure it was true. Make sure it wasn't counterfeit. And then they would say, what is it going to? And they would say, it's going to this or it's going to that. And then they'd turn around and they would drop it in this upside-down ram's horn, this upside-down shofar. And so they would put it in there. And so everyone around them would know what they were giving. Everyone around them would know what they were giving because the amount was going to be called out again. So in the midst of this scene, in the midst of this scenario, this is what we see. It says, And he sat opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. We got $10,000 on two. We got $5,000 on six. This is, the, this is the verbiage used. This is the amount coming in. It says, Then a poor widow came in and put two small copper coins, which make a penny. Imagine this. People largely know what they're giving. 
They hear it. And somebody's thinking back saying, man, that's awesome. That's amazing. I can't believe he gave that much money. This widow walks out, and, and over beside this, there would be this, this offering box for free, free will offerings. Now, there's some debate as to whether or not the money still had to be checked or validated in this. But she goes over, she's got these two small copper coins. She has the smallest amount of money available to her in their currency. She takes these and she drops them in. Significance, it doesn't really add anything. It doesn't enhance their budget. There's nothing really they can do with her gift because it's practically valueless from a monetary standpoint. Understand this. You got 10,000, you got 5,000, you got 100,000, and we have an amount that it's practically valueless. Jesus' words on this, he says, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. What we see, what we see, is that when generosity catches a hold of our hearts, and when we respond to God, and in responding to God, give, then our giving can truly be described as generous. You see, friends, we recognize that any generosity in our part isn't primarily a plan to grow in generosity, but is a response to the God that has already been so incredibly generous to us. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9, he says, for the grace of For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Recognize this. The riches of God, Jesus let go of. So that you might grow in true richness. Paul describes that richness in this way in Romans 5 eight. He says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And all of our giving, both our tithes and our offerings, are ultimately a response to the initiating generosity of God. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for your goodness to us. My desire is that I would be generous in my thoughts and actions, be generous with my finances, with my time, with my talents, with those things that I'm tempted to treasure. And so, God, I pray that same thing for us here this morning, that both the example of the Macedonian churches and the example of the poor widow would be an encouragement to us not to give more, but to give more of ourselves to you. And then in turning to you, you would lead us to assign monetary value. You would lead us to assign hourly value on our time. God, help us to stand before you so thankful of the free gift of salvation you've given us in Jesus. And in response to you, to give you our all. And Father God, we pray for those this morning who have yet to submit themselves to you. 
they've yet to respond to the incredibly kind and gracious gift of Jesus Christ who atones for their sins, who was the sacrifice once and for all that they might be redeemed, that they might be brought close to you. Father, this morning that they would submit themselves to you, that they would respond to your kindness and generosity in crying out for salvation. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.